There are a few topics I think that are more universal or that pique our interest more than the topic of suffering. Go in, into any bookstore, into any sort of place where they sell self-help books of inspiration or wisdom or life application. And the books on suffering will be filling the shelves. And I don't think this is supposed to mean that we like talking about suffering. I don't think this means that we like suffering at all. Actually, I think all this means... Is that we can't wrap our heads around suffering even though we are so desperate to. That I think is is what is being shown by countless books being released about some such difficulty or some such problem appearing in your life. There's always some new book that's coming out and it's supposed to sort of make sense of the puzzle of suffering. And I think this is universally true. Whether you're... Whether your background is in the church or not. Whether your worldview, the way that you look at the world, whether it begins with the God of the Bible or whether it doesn't. No matter what, I think most of the frustrating parts of life is learning how to cope with all of these seasons of of pain and perplexity and confusion and frustration. And learning how to make sense of that, that always seems elusive. It always seems to be something that we cannot quite grasp. Why is there so much tragedy in the world? That's the question. After scandal, after upheaval, right? The Fox News reporters, they go and they interview the person. And the person says, why would God let this happen? (laughs) And that's the question on everyone's minds. If God is really capable of what the Bible says he's capable of, why did this occur? Why is there so much affliction in this world that he created? Why would a God who's supposedly good and the author of all good let this planet that he spoke into existence be filled with so much bad? Why doesn't he do something? That's the question, right? Why is there so much violence and corruption and ruin? These are not new questions. These are not questions that have just arisen in the last few years out of the ideas that man can philosophize or figure out all of these things in his own mind, in his own wisdom. Mankind has been wrestling these things, I think, since the beginning of civilization. Man has always been struggling with trying to figure out what life's struggles mean. How do we make sense of them? How do we wrap our minds around these questions of suffering and sorrow and grief? And I think the point is this, is that how you answer those questions is going to be very revealing about what you believe. And in fact, I think much like the friends of Job, who sit with Job in the ashes of his former life, your method, the way in which you answer or try to solve, quote-unquote, the questions of suffering, it speaks volumes for what you believe. You could very well choose not to answer. Don't answer the questions. You could give up. You could resign yourself to the idea that none of this has a point. None of this matters. Suffering can make you say, all of this is pointless, life is meaningless, so let's just live it up because all of this doesn't matter anyways. That, I'd wager, is the predominant philosophy of the day. 
Modern thinking, I think, presumes that if God is good, there wouldn't be so much, so much bad. But since this, rife, this world is rife with bad, that must mean that God doesn't exist. Or if it does, it means that he's not good. So either way, let's just party. Let's party now, for tomorrow we die. That's the predominant, prevailing mindset of a lot of people that you see around you. It doesn't matter anyways. Nothing matters. Or you could learn to despise life itself because of the problem of suffering. You could let it embitter you toward life altogether. This is the person who says, God never comes through. It's the person who's angry about everything all the time because suffering has soured them. They've always seemed to uh, grab the short straw, so to speak. A life always seems to be giving them the raw deal, the raw end of the deal. No matter what sort of juncture or intersection of life they come up to, the person that is embittered toward everything is the one who always seems so jaded. Because, you know, God's never come through before, so why bother? Or, you could suffer the way that the Bible presents it. What I like to call suffering honestly. What does that mean? How is the, how is the, how are we, the church, supposed to view and understand the sorrows and the struggles and the disappointments of life? How are we supposed to make them make sense, if that's even possible? How should we view all of the pain and, and the perplexity of this life in a way that is hopeful? You know, the church for as long as it's existed, has offered no shortage of ways and ideas and and theories for handling suffering and and for uh, trying to make sense of it in ages past with some methods faring better than others. I think the point is this, though, that even those who have faith, they don't have all the answers. Even if you believe in the God of the Bible, it doesn't mean you're going to have all the answers. Actually, suffering rarely has easy answers. And sometimes it can feel as if it doesn't have answers at all. At least on this side of eternity. But even still for you, for the church, for those who have been adopted into the family of God, we have a better hope. Because there is a way that you and I can cope with all those painful and dreadful times. And again, that's not to say that we're going to have all the answers. It's not going to say that we have everything figured out. If someone says that they have life sufferings figured out, you, you're probably going to say that they're probably wrong. <laughs> but it does mean that we can look at suffering in the face. We can look at it in the eyes, so to speak, and we can suffer honestly. And in fact, I think that's what the writer is sort of leaning into in verse number 3. Again, notice chapter 12, look at verse 3, where he says this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. It's very clear, if you don't know, he's talking about Jesus. Consider Jesus. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And I think by that very admission... That in order to not grow weary and faint-hearted, you've got to look unto Jesus. He's thereby admitting what? That there is something apart in this life that makes us grow weary and faint-hearted. He's admitting to the wearisomeness that is this life, I think. 
It's very apparent for these believers. Remember, we've, we've been sort of leading into this church. The, the, the church that this Hebrew writer is addressing is a church made up of Hebrew believers who are on the verge. They're teetering because their faith is being rocked. Their faith is being shaken. He's reminded of that. You remember, he says in the, in the verses just prior. You remember how you went through such an ordeal? Historically speaking, I think he's looking back on that summer of 64, so to speak. The summer when Nero uh, fiddled while Rome burned. And really who was burning was Christians. They had endured that, perhaps. And I think the writer is looking back on that and saying, consider all of that. And yes, even still, despite all of that, what does he say? Everything around you, it could make you weary. It could make you faint-hearted. It could make you want to give up as you are tempted to do. But instead, what does he say? Consider Jesus. Because as he said over and over again, Jesus is so much better. Life is though full of... Full of that wearisome times, hardship, adversity, and, and struggle. And the old saying is true, right? That in this life, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes and suffering. <laughs> you could add that third one to the list. It's part of this world that we live in. A broken world. A world that is fractured because of what occurred in the fall. And yet the point is this. Faith in God, just saying I believe in God, is is not a denial of that reality. Just because we're Christians and we say we have faith doesn't mean we have to live through life with a Pollyanna smile on our face saying everything's okay. With a veneer of our problems are not that bad. The faith that informs us, faith in God, doesn't mean we have to put our heads in the sand like ostriches and pretend our problems aren't really problems. God's followers are not ostriches. We can look at suffering in the face. No matter what that may look like or no matter what that may mean, we can look at suffering and suffer honestly and we can call it what it is. How does the writer help us do that? How does the writer help these Christians in this timeline? How does he help them suffer honestly? Well, I think he has three ways that he does that. Three ways in which I think we can suffer honestly. And I would say suffer by faith. Number one, I think, is to remember this. Suffering has a point. Suffering has a point. And this, by its very admission, I think, is a very perplexing and very frustrating thing. Because again, sometimes the things, the, the, the horrible tragedies that we see, they can seem very pointless. For those in the church, though, those who belong to Jesus, our abiding hope is that, is that suffering is not pointless. It's about a perspective, I think. And yeah, there are times when it's going to feel that way. There are times when it just seems like there's a random stream of bad news that you're constantly seeing or that maybe even perhaps that you're constantly experiencing. And it just keeps coming our way. But whether or not we are privy to it, whether or not we are the ones who or have the wisdom or not, it doesn't change the fact that suffering does. In the grand scheme of what God has designed and his providential gracious wisdom, yes, suffering has a point. We don't know what that point is. 
We don't know what that purpose is. And that can be very frustrating, can it? We want to know what the point of that was. Why did God let me go through that? But there's, I think, some comfort in knowing that it does have a point, even if we don't know it. Suffering by faith means taking God at at his word and trusting that even if we don't know the point, he does. He's the one who knows the purpose behind it all. That's what suffering by faith, I think, means. Suffering by faith, I think, means believing, trusting, clinging to that word and knowing that, yes, suffering has a point and it makes sense then why he would lean into this idea that suffering for the believer, for those who are called the sons and daughters of God, is actually viewed through the lens of discipline. Notice what he says in verse number 3 again. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, have you, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. He's writing to the church and he's reminding them of what God's word says. He quotes directly out of the wisdom of the Proverbs. He's quoting Proverbs 3. In order that it may see... That part of suffering honestly means seeing it as the discipline of God for those that he loves. And in fact, in nine verses, that word discipline appears eight times. It's popping up over and over and over again. And each time it carries with it the meaning of correcting or training. It's something that is indicative of something being taught in us or taught out of us. And in verse 11 brings this home even further. Look at verse 11 where it says this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. <laughs> what a verse is that? This is, he's calling it what it is. Yeah, it's it's painful. It's not enjoyable. And in fact, this is, I think, made even more clear by that word training at the end. It is literally an athletic word. It means to exercise or to be disciplined in a gymnasium, essentially. And I think it's hearkening back to that idea of the runner from verse 1 that let us run with endurance. How do you build endurance? Well, you discipline through training. You, you, you run and you run and you keep building up more and more lung capacity to allow you to run longer. And believe me, that is not something that I enjoy. <laughs> I love to sprint. I used to, at least, before I had three knee surgeries. <laughs> I used to be uh, athletic. I don't feel like I am anymore. Um, but I used to love playing basketball. I used to love uh, enjoying those times of my life when I was able to uh, play on a team. And I always remember, I, yeah, I can go back to those times, right? Maybe you can too if you ever had any sort of uh, uh, athletics in your past. And you would have to be forced to run the dreaded suicides. 
Do you remember running suicides? I hated suicides. Oh, I, I, I despised running suicides. You know, you run to the foul line and back, and you run to half court and back, and you run to over and over again. And your coach would be again, again. And over and over again, you keep, you keep wondering why, and you're, and you're heaving, and you're leaning down, and you're breathing, and you're like, well, I can't run anymore, and your coach is doing something to you, right? And you feel like punching him. You feel like he's being mean to you. In the moment, right, when you're running suicides, it's painful. It's not pleasant. And yet, I think, I think that's a good example, because the coach seems to know something that we don't, Right? He seems to know that what this is doing is preparing you for something later. It's preparing all of you collectively as a group, as an individual, as, as not just individuals, but as a team to run together later on. And it, it's not fun, but you're being disciplined, you're being trained. And indeed, I think the same is true. That coach, he knows that that discipline is needed. Because come the end of the season, those who run suicides have legs that are still strong in the fourth quarter. And I think that the same is true for the coach that we have in our own life. And I don't say that glibly. God, I think, knows something that we don't. In fact, I know he knows something that we don't. He has wisdom that is far beyond us. I think suffering by faith understands all of those frustrating days, all of those days that don't seem to make sense. They can somewhat make a little bit of sense if we understand that God is disciplining something out of us. Or maybe, as we're going to see in a minute, I'm getting ahead of myself, maybe he's disciplining someone else through us. But the point is what? He has a wisdom that knows that this is for our good. Did you see that phrase? Oh, maybe we didn't read it. Yeah, verse number 10. Look at verse 10. For they, well, let me back up. Verse number 8. Are you, are, uh, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. Listen to this, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The heat of the moment certainly has a way of blinding us to what God may be doing. Running suicides, it's horrible, you're heaving. To bring it to a more serious level, think about again the church. In this particular time period, in which this writer is trying to encourage them to behold Jesus. They've seen friends and perhaps even apostles martyred for their faith. They've seen friends drug off into arenas and fed to lions. Because they confessed that Jesus is the Christ. I don't know about you, but I would... I would view that in, the mo- in a similar way. God, what do you got going on? 
The heat of the moment can blind us to what God may be up to. Discipline doesn't always feel good. It is painful rather than pleasant. But faith believes and trusts and clings to the word of God. And knows that it's true and believes that he's, he's up to something. That there is a purpose. That he is working in us. That he's working on us. That he is working through us. He is the one who understands the point. Even if we don't, he's the one who has that point in the palm of his hands, even if we can't understand it. I love this quote from Luther. Luther, that great reformer of the faith. He says this, commenting on one of the Psalms. He says, quote, his, meaning God's work upon his saints, is one thing in appearance, but quite a different thing in reality. He seems to kill But in reality, he makes alive. He wounds, but in reality, he heals. He confounds, but at that very time, in reality, glorifies. He bringeth down to the grave, but at that very time, rather brings up from the grave. (laughs) And I think this speaks to what we can see. The work of God is sometimes camouflaged. It's sometimes, it's not always perceptible. It's not always easily seen as something that he's working in us. But to be sure, faith clings to that word of God that says that this is for your good and my glory. And again, this doesn't mean that God causes suffering. He's not the author of it. But he is I would like to say like an artist who uses pain and perplexity to paint a beautiful tapestry of his grace and providence. He uses it in a mighty way. In a way to show forth what he can do out of the wreckage of our lives. He takes things that are broken and then he says what? That I'm going to use that to have everyone share in my holiness. He takes his own murder upon the cross and says what? That this is the way that my righteousness flows onto sinners. That we may share. And his holiness, that's who God is. Ours is a God who repurposes all of the horrific seasons, all of the depressing seasons, all of the disappointing seasons, all of those seasons of difficulty and discipline. He takes all of that and he repurposes it into the proven grounds of his holiness. That's what he does. Why does he say, why does Paul say that he works all things together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose? It's because that, the only one who can do that, the only one who can make and twist everything that's twisted already and make it into something good is this God. This one who is behind it all, who is standing behind the thundercloud, that storm. He's the one who has the power and the grace to turn all of the bad ingredients of life into something glorious. That's what he's doing. That's what he's working. That's what he's disciplining us to see. Suffering has a point. Number two, though, suffering reveals who we are. Suffering reveals who we are. And at first, that, that may not sound very comforting. Suffering reveals who we are may sound like a negative thing. Woo, I don't want that. But I assure you it is. Notice verse 5 again. Notice, notice what the writer says. 
And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If he didn't catch what he's trying to convey to them, notice how many times he says that word sons over and over again. He's leaning into that relationship. I think this is that one of the most significant things that he is going to bring up here in terms of how do we, as the children of God, suffer by faith and suffer honestly. Yes, we can view it as God's discipline, that he's chiseling something off of us that doesn't need to be there. He's doing something in us that even though we might not have the wisdom to see it, we can believe in it. But even more so, we can understand that what is happening through that discipline is not affecting our status As his children. Again notice verse number 8. If you are left without discipline. In which all have participated. Then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He's saying if you're not being disciplined. And I think he's using this sort of hyperbolic scenario. If you're not being disciplined. You better question your status. Which is just to say. This is the trademark of those whom God loves. He's alluding to this identity that we have as sons or insert daughters. He's referencing the children that God has called us to be. And, in, and again, these same nine verses from verse two, or for, excuse me, verse three, all the way down to verse eleven, he mentions sons some six times, which again is indicative of just this fact that we, in our identity as God's children, that's what we are by faith because of because of what Jesus has done. That's not being altered. When we go through difficulty, when we go through heartache, it's easy to slip into that thinking though, isn't it? Maybe you're thinking that right now. How how could God love me? Look at what he's doing. Look at what he's doing. Seasons of adversity have a way of doing that don't they they have a way of troubling us to the core of our being troubling us something fierce causing us to question our standing as God's children but suffering by faith understands that this is actually revealing who we are that God is not disciplining us out of frustration or out of irritation The presence of discipline does not mean that God is mad at you. Actually, the writers just reveal that it means that he loves you. Again, verse number five. And what does he say? And if you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, as who you are in Christ, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you were reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. That's hard to... Hard to, to make sense of, I think, at times. But I think it makes sense if you're a parent. <laughs> I, haven't, I, don't, I don't know if I've said this yet. But when you're disciplining your kid and you say, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. <laughs> and you, as the kid, were like, yeah, right. But I, you feel it when you discipline them, right? 
And they look up at you with those little puppy dog eyes and they're like, don't discipline me. And it's really hard to, because to, you know that you need to. I think it makes sense if you understand it from that frame of mind. That his discipline is not to make us suffer. God is not delighting in heaven when we go through difficulty. That's not what he is doing. He is disciplining us because he loves us so much that he, that he does not want us to stay as we are. And he's disciplining us. Why? So that we might see who we already are in him. We are his children. Job 5, you don't have to turn there, but listen to this verse. Job 5, 17, a wonderful verse. In the midst of all of that heartache and, and suffering and anguish, what does Job say? Job 5, 17, behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. This is a theme throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 8, 5 says this, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Revelation 3, 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Over and over again, we see this, that God is using, he's repurposing the adversity that comes, about, uh, comes our way in this life. And he's using it for our good to reveal who we are in him, that we are his children. And it's not out of ill will, it's not out of irritation, it's out of love. And again, we could use, I'll, I'll, switch, I'll switch the illustration because I used it a couple months ago. Imagine a sculptor buying a hunk of granite. He's going to sit down and he's going to carve out of that big block of stone something beautiful. A statue of some such hero or whatever. And as he chisels away... He's hitting and knocking and nailing and he's chiseling away and breaking off parts of that hunk of stone. Because why? He sees already what it can become. Have you ever talked to an artist and they see like, like this piece of whatever wood or whatever. And they're like, I can see what this is going to be. I don't have that mind. <laughs> or a person, I, I've looked at blueprints like one time in my life and it looks like I'm looking at a foreign language. <laughs> But some people can see those blueprints and they're like, man, this house is going to be amazing. And artists do the same thing with a blank canvas or a hunk of stone. They can already see what it's going to become, what it already is in their eyes. And he's chiseling away at what it already is becoming. And it's out of love that he's doing it. The artist, the sculptor is not chiseling away and hacking away and chiseling away all of those chunks of unneeded granite because he hates the piece of granite. It's because he loves it. And he can't wait for it to be standing there in the full light of what he has already seen it as it is. Likewise, God does the same with us. We are not being disciplined because he's mad at us. But it is through that discipline, it is through that difficulty, yes, even yes, 
That he reveals what he has already called us to be, which is what? That amazing verse, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. We are his workmanship, literally a work of art, a masterpiece. That's what God has called you, and he is making you into that, yes, through all of these seasons of Frustration, despite how broken we are, he buys us because he knows what he can make us into. You see, we'd have to change the analogy if we wanted to be truthful. We're not a priceless piece of granite that Jesus carves. We're a forgotten piece of nothing that he is molding and melding into something immaculate. Because God has called us that. We have no worth in and of ourselves that God should love us. He loves us and therefore we are loved by him. And he makes us into what he's already called us to be. His children, my friends, that's what he's doing. He's revealing who we are. A son or a daughter of God. Through the chisel of his spirit. He's shaping us, fashioning us into his image. And yeah, that's a painful process. It's not fun to be nicked and dinged. And maybe you would say, I don't know what God's making out of me. He seems to be whittling me down quite a lot. Suffering by faith, though, trust that it's through this process that God is revealing who we already are in his sight. His children, my friends, you can cling to that blessed hope that suffering has a point, that suffering is revealing who you are. But also, number three, suffering isn't about us. Suffering isn't about us. And this perhaps strikes us as confusing at first. What do you mean? How dare you? Well, I mean just that. I mean it. Suffering doesn't really concern us. We're not the primary point of it. And that might sound weird, but let me explain. Notice verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 12. Because I think what the writer's going to lean into is this idea of we are suffering Together, we are being disciplined together. Notice, what does he say? Verse 12. Therefore, as he's talking about training, he's talking about discipline, he's talking about believing and hoping against hope that this is what God's doing. And he says, therefore, what? Lift your drooping knees and strengthen, or excuse me, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or or unholy like Esau. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Here, the writer relays a lot of things. Encouragement before sort of leaning into a warning and an admonishment. And then he brings up this really odd example of bringing up Esau. What does that mean? What does that have to do with what he's talking about? 
Well, remember, the, the writer, again, he's addressing a church, a group of believers who are struggling. And he's reminding them to, to hold fast, to have solid, firm faith in who Christ is and the fact that Jesus is better. That's what he's ushering them to see. And he wants this, yes, for each and every individual. You can imagine this being addressed to a person, to an individual person. That, yes, I want you to hold fast and I want you. But also he's addressing this church as a collective body, as a body of believers that is the body of Christ. And I think this is the thrust of those words in verses 12 through 14. When he's talking about finding strength for drooping hands and finding strength for weak knees. How do we do that? By looking unto Jesus. Again, that's the, that was the heading of this very section. Consider him. You could say, consider him who endured all of you. Why? So that you can find the strength so you're not weary. Instead, you're picking up your knees. <laughs> running with confidence, running with strength. It is only as we look to Jesus that we will ever receive the holiness that lets us see the Lord because it's a holiness that he gives us. It's only as we look to Jesus that we actually strive for peace with everyone. You can imagine that Jesus is that fixed point that we are called to look to, that we are all striving to run after. He's both the goal of our running and also the companion while we are running. But the point is this, that we who've been united to Jesus by faith, we have also been united to everyone else who's been united to Jesus by faith. So whether you realize it or not, you are someone else's running mate. Whether, whether you realize it or not, that's what you signed up for. <laughs> when you signed up to believe in Jesus, to confess that he is the Christ, you know what you also signed up for? To run with other runners who are running after Jesus and who are likewise struggling. And I think the point of this little section that he's addressing them here is that if you get off course, so too will your companion. So too will your running mate. It's not just you. Your disjointedness causes disjointedness in others. That's what he's saying when he's talking. Look at verse number 13. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Again, remember what he's been talking about for a couple chapters. He's talking about those who have the word of promise in front of them. They are part of the community of faith, but they've been greeted with this adversity. And they are choosing to defect from the blessings. They are choosing to fall away. And they're saying we would rather believe in something else rather than what God's word is telling us. And here he's saying, no, consider him or else you have no idea how that decision is going to have ripple effects on other runners. If you start running off just a little bit, you're going to get in a ditch and twist your ankle and get disjointed. You might be putting something out of, someone else out of joint too. And he says, this is the lesson of Esau. And again, what does he mean by that? Remember Esau's story who, as he says really briefly, he chose to punt on that birthright that he had as the firstborn of Isaac. All so that what? That his belly might be filled in those terms, Esau made a horrible deal. That was a terrible bargain. 
Not a good businessman. Yes, Jacob deceived him. Yes, it was Jacob's deceit that led to it. Also, we could say, if you really want to be theological, it was, not, it, it, it was in the plan of God always to bless Jacob, Jacob and not Esau. But of course, that's getting into other things that we don't have time for in, in context. But it, it was always in the cards that Jacob would be blessed and not Esau. But regardless, the point still stands that what you have in that moment, Esau is what? He's forfeiting the sacred blessing of who he is as Isaac's firstborn for what? For the sake of something fleeting the writer emphasizes it he exchanges it for what a single meal and he says those who start running off course they're doing the same thing we follow in Esau's footsteps when we take our eyes off of Jesus and we put it onto something else And the net result is what? Not just our own stumbling, but the stumbling of others too. Look at verse 15 as he says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You see, your suffering is not about you. It does involve you, it does concern you, but ultimately it's not about you. Because you believing in Jesus, that is what we are called to, to trust and cling to the fact that his discipline is working something in us. And we don't perceive what, we don't know exactly what. But by the same token, you have no idea how your patience through discipline is instilling and encouraging and infecting others. You have no idea how those around you need to see your endurance as they too struggle to suffer by faith. That's why we need the church. That's why we have this thing called church as it is. It's not to show off how religious we are, not to show off how righteous we are. It's to say that we are all collective runners. We are all strugglers. And sometimes we get off. Sometimes we lose sight. And yet, what is the great reminder that we are here brought together in one place as one people of God, one body of Christ. And we are here realigning our gaze back to Jesus You're running alongside others, whether you realize it or not. We're struggling just like you. We're trying to deal with difficulties and and hardships and, and circumstances that seem so beyond them. And they're dealing with it just like you. And again, I think that's why he's telling this church to not relinquish that hold on Jesus, but to consider him, to look to him, because they have no idea how others would be uh, influenced and encouraged in the faith in the same exact way. Again, this is why he's hearkening back to all of those cloud of witnesses. (laughs) They too were doing the same thing. And essentially you could see him as encouraging them to take your spot in that cloud of witnesses. Because you are going to be doing the same thing to others who follow you. You have no idea what God can do through your difficulty. Not just for you. Not just for your sort of betterment. But even for others around you. My friends, that's why it's called a community of faith. That's who we are. A family of strugglers. 
weary sometimes, yeah. But it's a place where we who are exhausted, we can find refuge, we can find relief. How? By looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And you see, as we consider him who endured all of that hostility for sinners, and as we have this encouragement to suffer, to remember that suffering has a point, to remember that suffering reveals who we are, to remember that suffering is not about us, you see, uh, I think the most amazing thing about all of this is, that's how Jesus suffered. That's how Jesus suffered. That's how he endured suffering as well. When it says, consider him who endured, this is how he endured. He knew that his suffering, Jesus did, had a point, which was what? Matthew 3.15, to fulfill all righteousness. Yours and mine. Jesus knew that his suffering would reveal who he was. He was not just a man. He was the God-man. The incarnate God of all living, the God of, the f- of flesh and bone. And as he hung on a cross, suffering for a world full of sinners who reviled him, who hated him. What was he doing? He was revealing the heart of God. That he's willing to go to that degree of suffering in order to save your soul out of sin and death. My friends, the truest picture that we have of who God is, is that suffering Christ on the cross who is there suffering for us as God in the flesh. And when we look unto Jesus, that's who's looking back. A God who's been there. A God who suffered for us. Again, going back to Hebrews, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because in his ultimate weakness... The power of God was made perfect. Because in his weakness, in the weakness of Christ dying, what happens? Sin is put to death and suffering finds its resolution. My friends, suffering revealed who Jesus was. And he also knew not only just that, but he knew that his suffering was not about him. It was about us. Remember that prayer that he prays in the garden of Gethsemane. And he's on his knees and he's praying and he's sweating as it were drops of blood from his head. Why? Because of the enormous weight of the fact that in a few hours he would be wearing the sin and guilt and shame of every sinner who's ever lived. It wasn't just the fact that he was going to die. And he knew it. The weight of that garden prayer is the fact that he knew that he's paying for sins. Yeah, sins of your grandchildren and great-grandchildren. He was paying for, he was purchasing their atonement. And the weight of that, that infinite weight of sin found its defeat in that death of Jesus He knew that his suffering wasn't about him. And he was willing to suffer for us. What makes suffering so endlessly fascinating. Is I think it's just that. Is that the God who shows up in times of weariness and failing and exhaustion. Is not the God we expect or want. 
It's not the God who waves a magic wand and makes all of our problems go away. It's not the God who shows us the blueprint and says, you're here, just hold on a little bit longer. It's not the God who gives us all the answers all the time. But ours is a God who doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't leave us by ourselves in tragedy. In fact, that's where he sets up shop. That's what he's known and found. And he suffers alongside us so that we see that we will never be left. We will never be forsaken. We will never be forgotten. And though we might endure pain and perplexity, nothing, nothing, my friends, can shake the presence of God from you who are his. Our God comes down to us. And he suffers with us. And he disciplines us because he loves us. And he wants us to see that he is all that we have. I think that's what it means to suffer honestly. To suffer by faith. In the end it comes down to one thing. I think the fulcrum of all of life. Especially of this letter. It is this. Looking unto Jesus May that be your abiding aim as you are running an enduring discipline. And yet at the same time, that is what we are calling others to as well. My friends, if you know someone enduring hardship, maybe you need this message for yourself. You're going through difficulty and you need to remember what God is doing or maybe doing and looking and considering Jesus. Or maybe, maybe you know someone who is. Maybe the Lord is prompting you to encourage that brother or sister to get back in the race. To continue running. Running with endurance. That race that is before us. Because that's what God is calling us to, my friends. That is where we are this morning. Every weary sinner, every exhausted, tired runner, there is grace for you at this table. There's grace for you in this word. And my friends... You can only find it as you look unto Jesus. May that be our aim. May he be the one we all run after. Let us pray.